remember whenever I was a little kid, so I really relate to you guys where you are. I remember whenever I was a little kid, there were so many things that I couldn't do or things that I had to do that I was convinced was so unfair, was so wrong. And I can remember so many times talking to my mom being like, that is not fair. There's nothing right about that. And I would argue back, and I remember my mom, she would try to explain things to me, but so often I just couldn't understand. I could not understand her perspective. And I remember her saying this to me a lot. She would say, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to trust me. But listen, one day you will understand. And I thought, no, I'll never understand that. It's so unfair. But you know what happens to me now as I'm a parent? I find myself saying to my kids, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to trust me. One day you will understand. It's a hard thing to not understand why things are the way that they are and whenever they seem so unfair, it's very hard. But this reality is not just something that kids have. In fact, it is a very real part of life. Even as believers, even as followers of Jesus, there are so many things about this life that just don't seem fair. There are so many things as we look around in our world, as we look at the suffering and the brokenness of this world, whenever we see it, whenever we're faced with it, we say, how can that be? God, how can, you, how can you allow this to happen? If you have not had that question or asked that question of God, you are not being real with God. You're just living in denial or turning your head. If you haven't wrestled with that real question, you're not being honest. Just this past week, I was meeting with a guy in town and we had a great conversation and he was really opening up his life, and we were talking about uh, God and Jesus and, and spiritual things. And um, so one of the things he shared to me about his life is he said, hey, listen, um, you know, I grew up kind of believing that the Bible was true, but then I went away to college, and as I began to grow up, and I began to see the suffering in the world and the brokenness of this world, and I just began to see... How can a good God allow this to happen? And so this guy so wrestled with that question, he walked away from any kind of belief in the God of the Bible. I mean, he said, well, maybe there's a God and maybe he created everything, but he's not involved in the world. He's not loving. He can't be to allow all this to happen. And that real question, which is, by the way, one of the, the biggest questions that people have who do not yet believe, wrestling with that reality of suffering, uh, that was his barrier. And, and now that's a real question to take seriously. Just this past week, I had a number of just stories and things that came to me about real life suffering. And many of us, even in this room, are walking through real suffering, are walking through circumstances that don't make any kind of sense. But just this past week, I was just face-to-face -face with a really painful one. Uh, it was the story of a, of a grandmother here locally who's trying to help her grandson who has late-stage cancer. Little boy, like eight years old. And this little boy has been through uh, 30 rounds of radiation and is about to go through 15 rounds of chemotherapy. And this little boy lives with his mother. His folks are divorced. His mom doesn't have a job, just overwhelmed by life. 
And the grandmother, who doesn't have that much money, is trying to figure out how to help this little boy. And as the, the details of that story came to me, you know what I found in myself? I was wanting to turn away. I mean, to look into the full reality of that situation, it was just too much, too overwhelming. The suffering is too great. And so I notice in myself wanting to avoid the reality of it. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Turning away as you see broken things in this world? I think we have all kinds of little strategies of dealing with the brokenness of this world. And I think oftentimes we're afraid to bring that to God. We're afraid of facing it because we're afraid it will bring us to that place of saying, God, how can you allow that to happen? But it's when we face that question that I think our relationship with God begins to get a little bit more real. You see, the Bible is very real about the world that we live in and the suffering of this world. And the Bible calls us to be people who live in this world filled with suffering and pain and evil, but yet be a people of joy, be a people of hope, even in the midst of suffering, even while we suffer, that we are to be like a city set on a hill and that light that's emanating from us is joy and hope in something that's coming. So how do we be people of joy like that in the midst of so much suffering and not be escapists, not just live in denial? Well, the Bible gives us the gospel as the ultimate hope for this world. Really, as we look at the whole Bible, the whole Bible is the story of the gospel. The gospel is not just in the New Testament. It's literally a, a summer of the entire story of the Bible. And the gospel speaks to the suffering in our world definitively. It doesn't answer every question that we have. There's so many things for which the reality is you don't understand now, but one day that you will. But the gospel is a tremendous answer to the suffering that we find in our life. And so, how does it answer it? What is the gospel? What is the story of the gospel? And the gospel actually begins with creation. The first thing that you got to realize to make sense of this world as a follower of Jesus is that this is not the way that God made things. It is not His intention for the world. We see very clearly in the Bible that God made this world a very different place. He made it to be a place of love, of unity, of beauty. Whenever you look at the story of creation in the Bible, you see God overflowing with joy in the beautiful world that He was creating. Rocks and trees and mountains and oceans and animals and all of these things filled His heart with joy. And then He made people which really filled Him with joy. And there was peace, there was unity, there was harmony, and God dwelled physically with His people forever. And so the first thing you've got to remember is that was God's idea. That was His intention. But something tragic happened to that world. All of the brokenness that we see in our world came from one single sin. Adam, the first man, he chose to sin and turn away from God and to be his own God and to rebel. And through that one sin, all the brokenness and all the suffering of this world became a reality. Humanity's relationship with God was forever broken. God's presence, His renewing, life-giving presence with creation itself was forever broken. As you look at Genesis 3 where we see that fall, we see 
that that one sin even affected the everyday realities of this world. It, it, it affected work. It affected families. It affected childbearing. It affected our relationship with ourself. You even see Adam and Eve, they begin to feel shame. All of a sudden, their relationship with their self is broken. As we look at that, that fall and the tragedy of sin, we begin to see the, the why of all the things that we face in our life, whether it be war all the way around the world, whether it be the brokenness in your own family, the brokenness in your own marriage, or whether it be the brokenness in your own heart, depression, anxiety. You see, all of these things were not the way that God made it, but rather a result of one sin that forever fractured humanity's relationship with God and brought curse upon this earth brought judgment upon this earth, separated it from God. But here's the good news, the good news of the gospel. God determined that he would not abandon his creation, but rather he chose to do the unthinkable. He chose to send his son into the world to rescue the world. That is the good news that spans the whole Bible. And even from the very beginning, he had that one plan I'm going to rescue not only humanity, but creation itself through the sending of one man, Jesus Christ, to rescue all of creation. And through his perfect life and through his death on a cross, whereby he took upon himself all the wrath and the guilt of our sin, he reconciles us to God. All things are brought back to God. You see, the reality is we got into this mess through a man, and we can only be rescued from this mess through a man, Jesus Christ. He came to rescue all of creation. But here's the reality. That doesn't end the story. Rather, the Bible tells us that by virtue of the cross, by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross, God is moving all of human history towards a day where everything will be made new. In fact, even now, God is at work through His Spirit through His people, bringing about renewal in the earth. That God is going to make this place new. That He's going to transform bodies and creation and people. That's what we've been seeing over and over and over in this series that we've been in. That is the vision of the Bible. It's physical. It's not just spiritual. It doesn't just deal with our sin problem. Rather, it deals with the very existence of evil in the world. You see, the last piece of the gospel is new creation. And now that's what we've been camping out on, that's what we've been talking about, and that's what we've seen is to be our vision as God's people. That is, in fact, the scope of the gospel. We saw that last week. In Isaiah 61, to preach the gospel is to preach the renewal of all things in Jesus. And this is our vision. This is the hope to which we've called, been called. Do you see how that speaks to the reality of this world. Again, it doesn't answer every question that we have. But when we look at the brokenness of this world, the gospel tells us that he is so committed to renewal. He is so committed to the reversal of everything that is broken, to the removal of everything that is evil and unjust in the world, that he would actually suffer himself. You ever thought about that? We serve a God who suffered for us. He went to hell so that we never would and so that we would be rescued out of the brokenness of this world. 
That is the message of the gospel. And that speaks powerfully to the realities that we find in our world. And it is only as we have that vision that we can be a people of hope in the midst of the brokenness and the suffering of this world. So as we come now to our passage here, we see yet another picture of this renewal of all things. Yet another picture of all that God is going to do. Isaiah's on a canvas, painting over and over and over and all these things that we've seen. This grand vision that almost boggles the imagination of what God is going to create when He brings a new creation. Now notice right here in verse 17 how he introduces it here. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Now, one thing to note right off the bat is in the NIV it says, I will create, kind of like it's entirely a future event. But the Hebrew is actually a participle there. That means that it's like an ongoing action that will be completed in the future. In other words, God is saying, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. And in some of your translations reflect that as it says, I create. I create a new heavens and a new earth. It's heavens and earth is a way of speaking of all of creation. I mean, it's everything that God created. Heavens and earth, that includes the earth, everything in it, rocks, trees, animals, people, but it also includes all of the cosmos, all of space. Everything that He has created, He will make new. Notice how physical that is. I will make a new earth. You see, that's our hope. Sometimes we tend to think, and this has been, I think, an assumption in our culture for a long time, that our future hope is just heaven. We've talked about this a good bit. That our future hope is that one day we will be beamed out of this world and we'll go up to heaven where we'll live forever, we'll sit on clouds, We'll play harps. We'll sing in a choir for all of eternity. Now, singing in a choir for all of eternity does not sound like heaven to me. It sounds a whole lot like the other place. If you ever seen me sing, you don't want me singing in a choir for all of eternity. You know, in other words, we have this vision of heaven that is non-physical. It's just spiritual. Somehow we imagine that God pertains only to the spiritual realities of our life, but rather our bodies and our work and our neighborhoods and our communities and our governments and all of this stuff, well, that's, entirely, that's something entirely different. We tend to think about everything created in this earth as just being temporary. So if everything's temporary and it doesn't really matter, well, there's no real meaning to how we spend most of our lives at work. Rather, the realm of God is just those, those times on Sunday morning when I'm singing or Whenever I have a quiet time, those are the spiritual times. Those are the God times. But the whole rest of my life, it has nothing to do with God. But the Bible shows us that everything has to do with God. That He is at work renewing absolutely everything in this earth. And that our future is a physical reality. A renewed earth. A new earth. Everything that is beautiful and wonderful and that we love about this creation will last and continue into the world to come, only it will be perfected. It will be absent of any sign of sin in any way. Is that appealing to you? Is it appealing to you that trees are God's idea? Not just something that He's like, ah, let's get rid of this. 
that mountains and streams and animals and people, all God's idea, bodies, that was his good creation. That he said, ah, oh, it's very good. I like that. You see, the gospel shows us it is that that he intends to redeem. All of creation. It begins to give meaning to my work. It begins to give meaning to my body, to creation itself. It tends to give a, an incredible vision for our life. As we look at the book of Revelation, you know the book of Revelation is the climax of the Bible and it's kind of showing us the future. It's really taking up this vision that's in Isaiah and throughout the rest of the Bible and kind of heightening it. And one of the things we see in Revelation over and over and over is all of the redeemed souls, the spirits of those who have died in the Lord, they're before the throne and they're worshiping Jesus. And do you know what they're not saying? We actually see in Revelation what they're saying over and over and over. You know what they're not saying? Finally, whew, we made it. It's all over. They're not saying that. Do you know what they're saying? How long, O oh Lord? How long until we go back and establish your kingdom? How long till we go back and we get resurrection? How long till we go back and our spirits are reunited with our bodies? In the new earth, how long till you go back and you avenge our blood? You see, there is a longing in heaven. Heaven is not content. Heaven is longing for the day that has been promised and held out through the whole Bible that one day heaven and earth will be one again. You know, at the very end of the book of Revelation, you have this great climax of the fulfillment of all things. And it's portrayed as a wedding ceremony as a bride coming down the aisle to meet her groom. Do you know what the wedding is? Go back and read this. The wedding is the marriage of heaven and earth. You see, the whole problem from the perspective of the Bible is there is a separation between heaven and earth. That's what happened with the first sin. See, heaven is God's realm. And God created it to be one. But rather, as sin entered, it fractured forever it split them apart but the vision of revelation is one day heaven and earth will once again be one that is our hope it's a tremendous hope it's incredibly incredibly real and physical so let's look look just at a few things even in our passage here about how isaiah portrays this future world and future fulfillment of all things. We see right off the bat, first and foremost, what will not be there. Did you notice that? Look at verse 18, or second part of verse 17. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The thing that will not be there is any hint of suffering or evil or pain or sadness. Will not be there. Nowhere to be found. Whenever it says the former things will not be remembered, what is the former things? Well, if you look in the passage before, it's all the broken realities of this world. Everything that involves suffering. And he says none of those things will be remembered. Now imagine that. Imagine stepping into the new earth and saying, Cancer? I'm sorry, I've never, I've never heard that term. Can you explain that to me? Death? I'm sorry. Divorce? Huh? That's a strange word. That's a funny word. War? 
terrorism? I'm sorry, you're going to have to tell me a little bit more. I've never, I've never heard of these concepts. I don't know what that means. So far, will all of those realities be removed that we won't even remember it? Can you bring yourself to imagine that? No more death. No more crying or weeping or pain. Can you imagine a world where there's absolutely none of those realities? In fact, no more death in the most tragic sense. You notice what he says down here in verse 20. Never again will there be in it, the new world, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He's speaking to the worst realities of death, and that is whenever a child dies. Now, some of us here know very well that tragedy. And I think it's probably the worst tragedy that you can ever imagine. It ought not to be. Do you see the hope of the new world? He says, never again will that take place. There will be no more death. There will be no more tragedy of any kind. No more sadness. It's what C.S. Lewis says that in the fullness of all things that everything sad will come untrue. What a wonderful place, way to put it. So we, we see not only what will not be a part of the creation, but what will be a part of the new world. And that is complete and total, unending joy. Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever. He calls us to rejoice now in what's coming, right there. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Jerusalem was God's people. That's the significance of Jerusalem. His people will be made a delight. They will be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. You know, the image of there is of perfect, complete joy that fills our hearts that flows from this reality. We forever know and experience God's delight in us. That's the best part about the new earth is that we will know God's pleasure not just in a faith kind of way, but literally, physically, visibly. We will know God's pleasure. God will look upon each one of us who are in Christ with His full smile. Can you imagine that? As, as Revelation puts it, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. You see, that involves touch. Can you imagine Jesus touching you and wiping tears from your eyes. The joy that will fill us will all flow from the intimate knowledge of the Lord. We will know His pleasure. We will know His delight. And so intimate will our relationship be, as He says later in the passage, while we're still speaking, He will hear. Before they call, I will answer. It's this idea of being so intimate in relationship with Him, whenever we talk to Him, He responds right back to us, just like any other intimate conversation we have. There'll be no more praying and waiting. There will be no more faith. Faith will give way to sight. What an amazing reality. So it will be never-ending joy, but also redemption will be physical. We see that even in this picture here. Look at verse 21. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Jump down to verse 23. No, they will not toil in vain. They will long enjoy the works of their hands. 
See how physical that is? They will build houses and dwell in them? Well, that sounds a lot like work. They will plant vineyards and enjoy the fruit of the vineyards. Wait a minute. Are we going to work in the new earth? You betcha. With one large difference. Work will not be cursed. You know, if you go way back to Genesis 3, part of the curse that came upon all of the earth through sin was the curse of work itself. Work is broken. Work doesn't work. That's why everybody's living for the weekend, right? That's why. That's why we're partying on Friday and we're bummed on Monday. Because of work. It is cursed. It doesn't work right. But in the new earth, the partying will be on Monday. Because we get to go back to work and we get to create. And everything that we do and everything that we work at, it will actually respond to us. Imagine if your work just went exactly the way you intended it to go. Imagine you went to create something and it just all worked. It all responded to you. Imagine there was no more toil, no more bitterness, no more falling apart of things at work. That's the vision of the new earth. Work, creativity, culture, the fullness of life. Do you see how physical it is? how physical redemption is. Then finally, creation itself will be renewed. And we see this repeated. We saw this earlier in, in chapter 11, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. What's it talking about there? The curse. Remember the curse came through the serpent. But that curse will now be upon the serpent. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. See, the vision here is that the whole earth becomes God's holy mountain. It all becomes His. It all becomes the special place of His dwelling. And there will be a renewal even of creation itself. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. What happens now if you get yourself a wolf and you get yourself a lamb and you lay them down together? What do you get? Dinner. Real quick. Right? It's because there is an inherent violence to creation. But the vision we get here is that this renewal will extend all the way down to the animal world. That there will be a change in nature of the animals. The lion will eat straw. He'll graze. No longer eating prey. There will be peace and harmony that fills the new earth that extends all the way down to creation. Now imagine that for a moment. Everything that you love about the beauty of this world being perfected. Imagine a home in the new earth. Imagine work. Imagine enjoying a sunset in the new earth. See, what we're intended to see is that the fullness of redemption includes all things. Do we have any uh, Narnia fans here? Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Kids, any of you kids seen, read the book, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or seen the movie? It's a tremendous movie. I'd encourage it to everybody. Um, it is a tremendous picture of capturing our hope, the fullness of this hope. In fact, it's amazing how in, uh, in the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all of Narnia, uh, how much it captures how, captures how physical it is. You know, the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is about Narnia 
this, this beautiful world that has been under the spell of the White Witch, right? She, she rules over Narnia, and she keeps it all frozen. Everything is lifeless and frozen. It's, it's said that it's always winter and never Christmas. Imagine that. It's a great way to put it. It's always frozen. There's no joy. There's no joy that was intended for Narnia. And it's all because her spell, her curse that remains over all of Narnia. And so as you look at Narnia and you see the, the scenes of Narnia, you see beautiful forests that are just frozen. You see rivers that are meant to be flowing that are just stagnant. There, there's no green, there's no flower, there's no sun. And even so many of the creatures of Narnia are frozen. As she puts them under a spell, they're just like stone. Yeah, there's, a, there's a hint of what they were intended to be, but there's no life in them. What a picture of the reality of the curse upon people as we look at them. Frozen, not, not what they were intended to be, made for a glory that is not a reality because of the spell of sin that is, that's over all of us. And so this is the reality of Narnia, this beautiful world that's not as it was created to be. But the whole story is about the coming of Aslan, the coming king, the lion. Aslan actually is Turkish for king. And as Aslan is coming, this prophecy, this old ancient prophecy begins to be uh, passed around as the creatures of Narnia begin to build their hope that maybe... Spring is coming, and here was the ancient prophecy about Aslan and his coming. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death, and when he shakes his mane, it shall be spring again. Kind of a nice little jingle, isn't it? It's this hope that whenever Aslan comes, all things will come to life, will come as they were intended to be. And as you go throughout the story... Aslan is on the move. That's what everyone is saying to each other. Aslan is coming. Aslan is on the move. And as he comes, spring begins to come. Things begin to thaw. Things turn green. The sun comes out. Rivers begin to flow. Flower, fruit. All of these things about this beautiful world begin to come into their intended glory as Aslan comes to redeem all things and take possession of Narnia. What an incredible picture of the gospel. He's almost stolen it from the pages of Isaiah. If you have the imagination to see it. See, here's the reality for us. This is our vision as a church. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is coming. He's coming and he has purchased this world through the cross. But yet he is going about, even now, bringing about renewal in this world. Spring is coming. If we have eyes to see the thaw beginning to take place in all the broken, frozen places of our world, and we become agents of that thaw, we become agents of that healing presence in the world as His kingdom comes, but yet we anticipate a day when Narnia or Trenton, this earth becomes all that it was intended to be. This is the vision and the hope which is to compel us as God's people. That story is our story, and we get to be a part of it.